So. All right, how does my waveform look? Are there weird bumps in it? I'm, I'm checking Ableton. It, it just, was fine last time. You just open it up and it's a perfect sine wave. Yeah. <laughs> John, why does your recording sound like, ooh? <laughs> and our new guest host, the uh, Pacific Hydrophone Network run by the U.S. Navy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, it's a it's an entire episode of just censored words. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> we're going. We're we're doing that stupid shit that the uh, that South Park did in like the early two thousands, where they did an episode with like a counter in the corner <laughs> of like how many times they you I don't remember. I think they said like shit or something. Or yeah, something. yeah. I prefer the the SpongeBob method, where the, for every different implied swear word, there is a different nautical sound effect. Oh yes, no, that's I love a, that. That is a much funnier bit. Like, uh, but I mean that SpongeBob being funnier than South Park is pretty much consistent throughout. So I think that's pretty much always the case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't think there was a single joke in South Park that ever reached the heights of "Is mayonnaise an instrument?" <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> like Patrick alone is funnier than anything that was ever on on South Park. That's And this is true. from somebody who used to watch a lot of South Park. I mean, um, sh- look, you're in great company. I think we all had some <laughs> terrible show we watched a lot of. For me, it was American Dad. I thought that's a really I, great show for like 8 years. I was consistently amazed that that show continued to be on cuz I was like, wait a minute, but you already have Family Guy. Why is that Family Guy too, but not funny? Oh, I thought American <laughs> Dad was significantly funnier than Damn. Family Guy. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't get into the like adult cartoons as much, but I did watch every episode of House. So you know, oh. we've, all done our, we've all done crimes. We've all Oof. committed crimes. <laughs> <laughs> TV crimes—the worst kind of crimes. <laughs> oh, That's man. so true. Because. They're crimes you commit while just trying to waste time. They're crimes <laughs> that you do to yourself That's in right. your free time. <laughs> Good God. Well. everybody your favorite mid-2000s television review podcast my name is john i'm dan i'm lena and we are an entirely listener supported show so if you support us on patreon thank you so much it is a great place it's the only place really to subscribe to us and to get all of our bonus content which is good information and also let me just say a lot of fun if you're not in the discord already go ahead and hop in there it's a great place to talk about stuff you hear on the show meet interesting people and learn more new interesting stuff than what you hear on the show if you're a patron and you don't have stickers yet just message us on patreon and if you want to help the show a little bit more you can leave us a five star review wherever you think it will help yep next next batch of stickers is going out sometime this week so i think there are two people waiting in line for those and uh that's that's just because i don't make it out of the house often enough and sometimes when i do i just do the thing i plan to do and then go home immediately 
<laughs> and just one final housekeeping note before we roll into the stories. If you are a listener who pretty much just listens to the free episodes that come out on Tuesday and skips the previews on Thursday, well, then I guess they come out on Friday. Uh, that's fine. But just to let you know, the second episode we released last week, our interview with Luna Oi about unions in Vietnam is not behind the paywall. And we definitely recommend folks check that out. It was a really great discussion. It was super fun. And, you know, I think it's, it's one of the rare places where you're going to get to actually hear from somebody from a socialist country talk about how their trade union system works. So, uh, definitely check that one out. And yeah. we're going to go through every single country and find <laughs> someone, even if it takes us 10 years to do it. So All what right. is the state of the socialist parties in San Marino? <laughs> <laughs> Just figuring out like what country is small enough that like an existing party in the United States could theoretically stage a revolution. There. What's it like being a communist in the Vatican City? <laughs> <laughs> you know... I feel like we probably wouldn't find any. I think that one is small enough and ideologically specific enough. Yeah, they might have a grip on that one. Well, we'll try Monaco next. We might be able to find something. Yeah, absolutely. But I could name tiny countries all day, but we're not going to. We're going to follow up with the REI workers in Cleveland who have won their union. We're so excited to report that they are affiliating with the RWDSU and that their vote count was one of those ones that you love to see. 27 to 12, which is overwhelming. Does that qualify as a landslide? I've heard a lot of weird liberals nitpick exactly exactly what a landslide <laughs> is in my life. So I just it, don't want to overstep. It's like 70%, I think. And that's pretty damn strong. Yeah, that's really great. Well, we heard from Nick Heilgeist, my member of the REI Cleveland Organizing Committee and Retail Sales Specialist at REI, who said, tonight we can finally say that REI Cleveland is a union store. I love working at REI. And with a seat at the table, I know we can make it better for workers and customers alike. As new members of the RWDSU, we Green Vests are united in our desire to create more transparent and consistent policies and a workplace that will be sustainable for workers for years to come. As we enter contract negotiations alongside our union family in Soho and Berkeley, we'd like to remind REI that we always, quote, start from a place of respect, and we hope they will, too. You know they're not gonna. Yeah, they're not, yeah. but I really do Really great love, speech, though. <laughs> yeah, I like the, uh, for workers in the future part of that statement, because I think that's one thing that is often used by, like, the you know, pro-capitalists or liberals who say, oh, just get a new job. It's like, yo, so you want me to just leave this job a shithole for someone else? Like, that sucks. Why would I do that to someone? I'm going to form a union and make this place better. Mm -hmm. I, right. I do love the idea that there's a there's a whole class of people out there who are like, you got to bootstrap, you got to do it yourself, you got to get up and, 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 and in the morning and pull yourself over the fence by those things. And then uh, if you have a problem with your workplace and you want to fix it, they're like, why don't you just give up? Why don't you just leave? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, every time. Um, and like speaking of the whole like, you know, having they have their very magnanimous statement there, like, you know, we're looking forward to bargaining and, and you mm -hmm. know, meeting everybody at the table. But I just wanted to bring up uh, one of our listeners who may or may not be tangentially related to one of the other unionized stores uh, had let us know <laughs> that apparently as part of the way that they tried to union bust at the store in Cleveland 
was that one of their managers basically told the the folks that were organizing at the Cleveland store that the unionized workers in Berkeley had accepted as part of their negotiations a three-year wage freeze. What? <laughs> wow, what? Which, like, first off, is, re- I mean, that's, you know, that would certainly perk up a lot of, of ears to hear, oh, wow, the union de- agreed to get no raises whatsoever, which would be wild were it true, <laughs> which it extremely is not. <laughs> But, I mean, I also want to point out that a wage freeze would be matching inflation, which is actually higher than some raises that we've seen union contracts get. So, oh, yeah, for depending a, a on re- how you actually read that, could actually be kind of a <laughs> better thing than some other conditions. Yeah, but it's just like so – because that's one of those things that it's like I, – I think most people who don't know much about or if anything about union organizing – which is understandable considering how this country chooses not to teach people about it, to discourage it, um, would hear this and be like, but you can't, come on, you must not be legally allowed to just lie to people <laughs> during <laughs> during this election. And it's just like, yeah, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> like, it, when when your bosses make the laws then you're not really like they're not really bound by them so mm-hmm. but yeah i and I, the thing though that i love about this is that like a the quick communication with the actual workers because of course it's like it's not as if there's walls set up between the workers at this cleveland store and the unionized workers in new york and in berkeley and so they just like reached out and they're like yeah that's extremely a lie yeah <laughs> And so we're able to immediately just show all the workers there, even ones who maybe weren't already totally on the side of the union. It's just like, yeah, your bosses are just making shit up to they lie do to you that. and discourage this. I mean, when I, I remember when the union buster threatened to fight me in the parking lot, it was because I called him a liar because what he said was that uh, one of the workers who had left to go to another job was out there canvassing a different similar store in the area. And I'm like, no, they weren't. We're not we're not doing that. Like, I mean, even if we were, that wouldn't necessarily be a problem, but you're lying. And uh yeah, they'll just like say whatever they can and spread whatever lies that they feel they can get away with. And then yeah. they'll try to fight you in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> which which only, you know, of course, makes this strong victory for these workers in Cleveland all the more impressive and just want to you know say congratulations shouts out all the workers at Cleveland for doing that hard work of organizing and we're look for, looking forward to the fourth fifth sixth and other future unionized stores at REI hell yeah absolutely and speaking of union victories we're going to be talking about a victory inside of a union where we've been covering the UAW's elections and the Members United slate and their attempt to actually bring rank-and-file democracy back to the UAW and support the workers in the ways that they would like to be supported. And to kind of give an update on that, we talked about how they had won most of the seats before, but then some some of those required some runoff elections. Well, we have one more victory and then a pending victory. So Daniel Vincente, who was running for Region 9, was kind of a he's a rank and file member and actually he's gonna be leaving his job as a He's a he's a factory floor worker making 
steering control cables for boats. So this is like, right, you don't yeah. get more direct off the shop floor. Than exactly. That. Well, uh, he won uh, with a 52 uh, to 48 margin on that. So it's kind of close. But I mean, a lot of these elections have been pretty close, especially with the amount of effort that the uh, incumbents have been putting into, well, uh, you know, maybe I don't want to talk too uh bad about them but there's been some shady practices going on uh and but anyway there's been a victory and so that's six out of six of the members united slate or the uawd um slate who are now on the executive board and we're hoping that in a short period of time it will become seven of seven bringing the total to seven of 13 creating a majority on the executive board with the uh, very hopeful uh, win by Sean Fain, but it's really close, and uh, they're basically recounting votes because it's down to a margin of like 645 votes. Yeah, it's like super close, but I just wanted to say like one other thing on on Vincente's election to to the directorship of Region 9, which was pretty close. It was 52-48 came down to it. but, you know, he did win, and he mentioned in an interview with the Detroit Free Press that a big part of what really solidified his his plan to run for the directorship was the move by the Admin Caucus to revoke the increase in strike pay that had been passed at last summer's convention uh, of the UAW, where they had ri- they had raised strike pay to $500 a week. And then the admin Congress came back and was like, wait, 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 wait. Actually, what if we didn't do that? What if we just kept it at 400, even though you guys all voted to raise it? And then they reverted it back. And then, like, last week, they finally upped it again. Like, you know, just right before the end of voting. So he, but he, like, specifically cited that move by them to pull back the increase in strike pay as, a, as something that really inspired him, that he's just like, we, we need a real change in the union. And he decided to to throw his hat in the ring and try and be a part of that. And so, like, I think that is really awesome. And also is one of those things that I just want to point out to people. It's like, you don't have to, like, go to special union officer school <laughs> to become, you know, a figure in your union. It, it, it's like the people, this is the whole thing with rank-and-file democracy. It's like the people doing the work in the organization are the people who should run the organization. So if your organization is being run like shit and you think it should be run better, you have that opportunity. If you have a democratically run union to run for that position. And like, because I think one of the things, I think there's this kind of mystique about like, or or perceived idea that it's like, if you're a union officer, you have to have been like, uh, you know, you have to have been president of your local or whatever, mm-hmm. and then moved up, you know, hierarchically. And it's like, eh, not necessarily. It's like, certainly, you know, being uh, a shop steward and then maybe being like a business agent and then maybe being a VP of a local, that's one path you can take. But like for this, their first election after passing one member, one vote, I think this is really given the opportunity for a lot of folks who without that level of democracy never would have made it onto the executive board to throw their hat in the ring and, and the election of, you know, six of six members so far of the members United slate, I really shows despite some of these kind of close numbers, Mm -hmm. 
how much of an appetite there is for change. But as you were saying, to get back to the presidential race, which we're still waiting on, uh, yeah, it is wild how close it was because there is something like about 130,000 members of the union voted, and it's going to come down to these 1,600 challenged ballots that are supposed to be counted. I believe they've said today they'll be counted on Thursday of this week. So the 9th, I believe. Uh, So we should, uh, by next week, know the outcome of this. But either way, super, super close election. Obviously, you know, we're hoping Fain gets over the line. But even if not, even if Curry stays in there, like the executive board is completely changed. That half of the rest of the members are now all reform members. And so they're going to have a lot of power on the board, even if uh, Sean Fain, who is leading right now by a margin of a, just under 700 votes, mm-hmm. even if, you know, those ballots all swing for Curry, like regardless of how this turns out, incredible showing by members United, incredible organizing work by the UAWD. And this election, oh, like number one, more than anything else, I think what this election really signifies is that there is a strong desire for a more militant UAW and for a UAW that is more responsive to the needs of the membership. And so no matter what ends up happening with the vote count between Fain and Curry, I think that bodes well for a more aggressive negotiation with the big three later this year. Obviously, we we think that it'll be better if Fain wins. Mm-hmm. But I think regardless, I think you're going to see that there's this strong appetite for change exists in the union, and that's going to affect union policy. And that's only a good thing. I mean, yeah, these kind of results and turnout don't take place without like a highly increased level of rank and file activity within the union. So regardless of whatever the specific end results are like, yeah, we're going to continue to see, um, you know, the uh, the results of that kind of of militant activity within the union. Hell yeah. I mean, we're I'm definitely very excited about it. Something I'm a little less uh, excited about is Mm -hmm. the continuing issues that are facing the people of Sri Lanka, because we had reported last year how there was a huge uprising to the point where they occupied the governor's mansion and were, like, watching TV and (laughs) just, like, vibing. But because of the way that, you know, it was kind of not organized to actually seize power and is more of a mass protest movement, the right wing was able to come back in. But now that right wing government is trying to repress a continued struggle for bettering conditions in the face of IMF austerity. Yeah, so... As you were saying, like we talked a lot last year about the big protest movement that drove the president and uh, several other leading members of the Sri Lankan government, uh, not only out of power, but at least for a short period out of the country, um, which was pretty cool. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, as you said, unfortunately, while the protests did affect change in who was at the top of the Sri Lankan government, it didn't lead to a, you know, organized worker takeover of the government. And unfortunately that has meant that the ruling class has stayed in power there. And that means that the economic crisis, which was caused by the ruling class and its mismanagement of the Sri Lankan economy has not gotten any better. And so the government you know, of course, being led by the capitalist class, as they are want to do, has turned to the IMF to deal with the uh, the horrible economic situation facing Sri Lanka, which has 
basically seen a total economic collapse. Um, the, the, the island nation has seen shortages of essentially all essentials, food, fuel, medicine. They, they've received, uh, you know, various aid packages from uh, a lot of governments in the region, including China. Uh, but also I think even some stuff, I think they got like cheap fuel from Russia. So they're, they're, they're basically like going out, look, anybody who will help, but they are focusing on the IMF. And that's a problem because if you know anything about the IMF, literally anything, <laughs> it is probably that the IMF mostly destroys countries because that's pretty much what it's for. Um, yeah, and, they and, exist so that yum foods can take over your culinary industry. <laughs> correct. <laughs> I too saw that TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in response to this and the continued pandering towards the IMF and the, the austerity policies that come with an IMF bailout, the workers' protest movement has continued and has like grown as the solutions to this economic crisis have not been forthcoming. They're like, look, we kind of calmed down for a bit after we drove the president out, but you were just doing the same exact shit he was doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so... The government of Ranil uh, Vikramasinghe, who took power after the former president was chased out of the country, he was he's a career politician who's been a part of several different governing coalitions in the country, and his whole move has been to attempt to seal this this about three billion dollar aid package from the IMF. And in order to do that, that basically requires privatizing all state services, opening the economy to be purchased by American businesses, mm-hmm. and even things like like desubsidizing energy costs, aka sending energy costs through the roof. And it's hard to pay for higher energy prices when you already can't get food. So they're going to fix inflation by making everything worse and more expensive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That worked Great. out really well for Puerto Rico, as we as we know. You mm-hmm. know, when they privatized all of the energy infrastructure, and now it's working great, right? <laughs> no, it's not. I'm getting word that it's not. It kind of feels <laughs> like we should insert that Arrested Development meme here, where he's like, "It never works for anybody," but somehow they delude themselves into thinking it will. But maybe it'll work for us. <laughs> no, but Lena. In Puerto Rico, that's just colonialism. This is different. This is neo-colonialism. Mm. Ah, right. So different. <laughs> this one lights up. It's RGB backlit. That, that, that's right. Uh, this one uses 80s nostalgia to tell you that it's good and different. Uh, but so, of course, you know, the people of Sri Lanka have largely been like, hey, uh, we do want to solve the economic crisis. We don't think we should sell the country to the United States to do it. That seems mm-hmm. like a bad deal. Um, and so there have been an, an, an upsurge in protest. And in response, the government has been like, aha, I have solved this. Strikes are now illegal. Wow, great solution. <laughs> Wonderful. You know what? Taking the power away from the people, that's what everyone says they want, right? They say power from the people, right? <laughs> right, right. So basically there there had been a planned mass strike movement across the country and really centered on in the capital, uh, Colombo, for last Wednesday, March 1st. And so the day before, February 28th, the government issued a decree saying that no, strikes are illegal 
And if you go on strike, you have no job protection. You will be immediately fired. Uh, and so... <laughs> they, but, and so the people were like, they can't fire us all? Well, they were. <laughs> but also, I just want to point out that, like, as far as, like, strike bans go, that's a pretty fucking weak one because you're just like oh, yeah, well, if you go on strike, you'll lose your job. And everybody else is like, thanks to your policies, my job doesn't pay me shit, so who cares? Yeah. <laughs> like, because, because you know, as part of these IMF proposals, they are, pl- they are hiking in- energy prices by 66%. Mm-hmm. Like, not like 5%, like 66 And again, this is people who already, you know, food is scarce, medicine is scarce, and now you're almost doubling the price of gas. And, and, you know, oil that you use to heat and all this, all this other stuff. And so this, this led to protests on the 26th, the weekend prior to the big uh, planned strike, where police attacked protesters, sending 28 people to the hospital and murdering one. And that is what, you know, the government used to justify the strike ban saying, well, look, there was violence. We need to prevent violence and ignoring the fact that the violence all came from the state. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Look, we did violence, and this can't happen again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hold me back. (laughs) Me. We have to stop you from provoking the police into murdering you. Like, Mm -hmm. that's basically what their argument was. They're going to fit in just fine with America when all of their, when all of their infrastructure is sold off. Well, right. I I don't mean to, that's actually a pretty dark joke. I'm, I'm, I almost want to take that one back. Well, it's interesting because it's, it seems like the critical mass here isn't even like the level of suffering of the people. It's just that the government has run out of things to take away. Like yeah. they li- there's just nothing they can do anymore. That's going to make people more cooperative. They only know double down on, on horrible punishment and repression, which is the very thing that got them in this situation. Yeah, absolutely. But so, uh, unsurprisingly, the threat to fire people in a country whose economy doesn't work anymore because mm-hmm. of the actions of the government did not actually work to <laughs> keep people from striking. And the mass strike went forward as planned on March 1st. 40 major trade unions, including hospital staff, electricity workers, dock workers, and even bank employees, yes. walked off the job to demand a reversal of these devastating policies that the IMF is demanding of the Comprador government. Bank uh, employees is really great to see because sometimes it can be hard to get them, you know, involved. But like if the banks aren't open, nobody's doing business. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And so uh, a couple quotes here from some of the workers. Uh, we are protesting because we are finding it difficult to live. The income tax bill must be removed. If not, we will ensure there are more problems for this government. (laughs) That's from Niroshan uh, Gorakanage, who is a convener for the Ports Trade Union Alliance. Uh, And then Haritha Aluthge of the Government Medical Officers Association told reporters after the strike, a token one-day protest is not going to sway the authorities. We will have to take stronger action. End quote. And I love that, like, immediately they're like, look, this is great. We love the protests. This rocks. We got to do more. We got to do bigger protests. We got to shut this shit down because fuck this. This is terrible. Absolutely. This isn't working. And this is one of those things where, like, I really am a little surprised that the Sri Lankan government hasn't been a bit more um, 
at least in its rhetoric, accommodating to the workers. Because it's like, this movement literally chased the last president out of the country. (laughs) And you're like, oh yeah, well, uh, here's more repression. It's like, I don't think that's a great idea. What are you going to do? Chase me out too? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just it's like, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. Like burn down my presidential palace? And then you have Ron Howard who's like, that's exactly what they were going to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's funny and it's it's it, because of how dumb it is. But like, and while we love to see this level of, of protest, it is just one of those reminders that like the IMF is, is just a big, it's, it's like a vulture that sits on the shoulder of like U S imperialism as it goes around the world. And then just anytime there's a crisis somewhere, it's like, Ooh, I can pick this corpse clean, you know, mm-hmm. neglecting the fact that the, the thing that it's looting from is, you know, a country made up of millions of people who have lives <laughs> And deserve dignity and should be able to, like, live, like, in relative prosperity. You know, they're working hard. These are people who are trying to survive and have families. Like, it's... Obviously, the United States doesn't give a fuck about that, and they are just going to exploit them and try to turn them into, like, a you know, a a way of pushing down wages or getting cheap materials and using classic imperialist tactics to, you know, I guess, benefit the the West. But, like, it it is absolutely appalling. And people need to get on this anti-IMF train because, like, I'm sure our listeners understand, but, like, it's a big deal. Yeah. So, you know, as always, all power to the Sri Lankan workers. And, uh, you know, I just hope that they're able to push back against this repression and fight off all these awful austerity uh, programs that the IMF is trying to force onto the country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, speaking of stripping people of their rights and uh, creating horrible situations, let's follow up with Norfolk Southern. So in the wake of the publicized rail disaster in East Palestine, Ohio, we have actually gotten many, many more details that have given a lot of credence to the many people condemning the, quote, cult of the operating ratio. So while workers have been forced to work sick and not see their families, we have seen the executives at Norfolk Southern be given uh, direct rewards for creating specifically the conditions that led to this horrible uh, incident. So it was confirmed by going over 2019 cost reports that executives specifically got bonuses for decreasing costs and increasing profits related to making trains longer and heavier. And then in 2021, when Norfolk Southern hit record low operating ratio, it helped then CEO James Squires land nearly three and a half million dollars in cash almost three times what he'd earned the year before, and at least four other executives got more than a million dollars each, including Norfolk Southern's current chief executive officer, Alan Shaw, who was executive vice president at the time. Also, these are some white guy names that just my attention slides <laughs> right off. These are like the the first and last. These are the given name equivalents of like uh, Intercontinental Logistics Trucking Incorporated. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean it's 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 like when you have like Ocean Transit Limited yeah. or or one of those like, it's it's CIA cutout names where yeah. they they're they're so vague they they just can't stick in your head. Yeah. 
logistics <laughs> deliveries or something. Yeah. So, and then all of this is happening while the executives claim that it's completely safe to run these monster length trains with only one person on and their accident rate has hit an all time high in 2021. Norfolk Southern in turn said that it produced a quote, industry leading total shareholder return. And then it gave its then CEO $8.5 million in stock and options on top of his cash award, bringing his total 2021 compensation to more than $14 million, again, specifically for making the trains less safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's just kind of like the basics. This is just the uh, overview of the cult of the operating ratio in that, like, it's just about increasing profits for shareholders. But there is also a leaked audio clip from a former Union Pacific worker that provided to The Guardian that uh, revealed that some workers have been ordered to stop tagging rail cars for broken bearings. On one recording, the manager says, uh, doing so delays other cargo. Stephanie Griffin, the worker who reported it, said, quote, It's very obvious the management is not concerned with public safety and is only concerned with making their numbers look good. Most railroad workers are fighting against the entire system that only exists as a money-making apparatus for the wealthy. Those trains run through our towns, but they do not run next to rich folks' homes, nor next to politicians' homes. This is a top-down problem. And yeah, that's I, true. End quote. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we all know that the rich people are not afraid of the same thing happening to their community as what happened in East Palestine, Ohio. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's not... the Hamp, there, There's no train full of vinyl chloride running through the Hamptons. No. Like, they're, they're, these trains don't run through, you know the uh, gated communities in Northern Virginia where all of the uh, defense department uh, graft millionaires all live. No, there's like fucking six different train tracks that run through Holland, Michigan. Not one of them goes anywhere near the DeVos estate. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. not surprising even a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not even, like those reports don't even tell the whole stories. Workers tasked with these inspections uh, are not given training. They are expected to learn from like senior inspectors and basically from a handbook. Like the, the, these people who are actually supposed to determine that these rail cars should be taken off and repaired, the kind of trains that caused the disaster in East Palestine, Ohio, uh, they are just told to kind of wing it and hope that someone teaches them well enough to do the job right. So it's basically the same management and training strategy as a fast food restaurant. Yes. I was actually thinking about that, but McDonald's training, because uh, I've been through that, is more thorough than what this was explained. <laughs> Ouch. Damn. Yeah, because I think this is one of those things that people might read. Like, if you're reading an article about this, and you, they think, well, yeah, okay, you learn from somebody who does it, or you learn from the handbook. And it's like, it, it sounds different when you read it than when you actually think about it. Because it's like, if your training regimen included as a part of it, reading the handbook on how sure. to do it, and included getting mentorship from another worker, sure, as part of an organized training program in which you presumably actually do some of this work on like a dummy piece of equipment. But that's not how it is. It's literally just, 
Yeah, all right. Bob's been here for 20 years. When he has time, he'll show you how to do it. He never has time because we fired the 17 other people who used to also work with Bob. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. This isn't the fucking Boy Scouts. You're operating, you're, you're checking trains for safety. You're not earning your fucking campfire badge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and all during this time, derailments have increased. So in 2013, the amount of derailments that were happening were 1.7 per 100 million miles traveled, uh, which has increased to a total of two. So it's, I mean, I don't know. These numbers are not as like really visceral to me. But the amount of derailments since 2013 has increased by 17% as kind of like a basic understanding of what this means. So we can at least understand it as trains are just not getting more safe. They are getting more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Which is like, you know, the, the opposite of how you expect transportation technology, or at least me as an engineer. I'm like, well, over time, you <laughs> learn how to make the thing better. And so it becomes more safe. But under capitalism, that's not how technology works. It's like that tweet where someone posted, like, I saw three uh, white dudes in business suits in a cafe, and one of them said, my personal idea of progress is when things are moving forward, which is the literal <laughs> definition of progress. And then they all nodded and agreed. And they can't even, they can't even keep up with that level of ideology. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, even in that, we're to follow up a little bit on what actually hap- is happening in East Palestine. The uh, as a cost cutting measure, Norfolk Southern has been not providing personal protective equipment to people, like such as respirators, who are cleaning up these contamin this contaminated site. Uh, workers have been asking for these adequate protections and have gotten either no response or will get back to use, and then they don't get back to them. And the only reason we know about it is because of the BMW E who have been fighting for these workers. Like, Hey, what the fuck? What? Why aren't you giving our folks PPE? And so they're out there, you know, trying to demand compensation from Norfolk Southern. But of course, you know, hard to do that when the government keeps coming in and just being like, Oh no, you can't. Well, you can't use worker leverage against the railroads. They pay us too much. Yeah. Well, and I think that the real reason this is happening is because what they are being held accountable for, Norfolk Southern, is the cleanup specifically, not the Mm -hmm. actual conditions of the people cleaning it up. So if the EPA finds that there is something that wasn't adequately cleaned up, they are going to do it themselves and then charge Norfolk Southern three times the amount. That's fine. But They had no stipulations on whether or not the people doing the cleaning for Norfolk Southern had proper safety equipment. Yeah, and and some of the workers who were roped into doing this by Norfolk Southern have reported in the days, like multiple days after leaving the job site, that they are still experiencing nausea and migraines and uh one worker that that was mentioned in the BMW statement that the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way employees they specifically said that one worker who on the site who was experiencing nausea and migraines went to their supervisor and was like, Hey, uh, we don't have any PPE and I don't feel good. So I would like to leave the site. And the supervisor was like, Oh yeah, I'll get back to you. And then just fucked off and just left them there for their condition to get worse. So yeah, I mean, Norfolk is, is trying to divest itself as fast as it possibly can of the consequences of this, no matter, you know, if they're actually making the problem worse by uh, continuing to cut costs, even on 
personal protective equipment to clean up a massive chemical spill. Mm-hmm. And they'll probably get a fucking bonus for that, too. Yeah. Oh, wow. This spill, you know, it was supposed to cost this much, but it costs slightly less, so here's millions of dollars. Anyways, nationalize the railroads and imprison the uh, rail company executives. Absolutely. Speaking of uh, needing to imprison people for crimes, uh, we're going to be talking uh, about a pretty serious story in regards to child labor. So we've been trying to follow uh, a lot more of these child labor stories as they've been coming out. We had initially talked about you know, the child labor at Hyundai as well as Packer Sanitation. And so because of some of these revelations i guess i can call them you know i mean as someone who lives in the united states it's not actually very surprising that this is happening but it is actual like evidence of it happening uh that child labor is not just a couple of uh, like a handful of companies that whoopsies we accidentally did it no this is a systemic thing that is happening all over we have like basically child trafficking networks within the United States designed to exploit children and their labor. Yeah, so most of this uh, story is coming out of a really, really well done. Like, look, fuck the New York Times. I don't like the New York Times. They're like the biggest cheerleaders for empire out there, and they do incredibly important work for the ideological state apparatus of soft-pedaling fascist policies for liberals. But... In this specific case, I will say the reporters who did this investigation into how widespread child labor is for the New York Times did a great job. Like, this is a really, really well done investigation. And that's probably the last nice thing that I'm going to say in this story. Uh, Because it's a really thorough investigation. There's also been another really good one by, we're going to talk about later, by in the Washington Post by Lauren K. Gurley. You know, cited her work a ton. She's a great reporter. Um... But so the New York Times investigation uh, centers a little bit actually on on Grand Rapids, Michigan, mm-hmm. and and one of the things that they talk about first is kids as young as thirteen working in factories making food. Uh, I mean, producing things as as common as Cheerios, Nature Valley granola bars, Lucky Charms. It's this stuff you know you see in every supermarket in the country. And one of the first people that they talk to was a young girl named Carolina who is a 15-year-old Guatemalan migrant who has been working at a Hearthside Food Solutions plant mm. in Grand Rapids. And speaking to the New York Times about her conditions at the plant, she said that, again, these are these are migrant kids who came to this country by themselves because their families needed more money and came here and are ostensibly supposed to be going to school, but really most of the time are instead just working because it's all that they can afford to do. And she told the New York Times that her stomach often hurt during her shift due to lack of sleep and constant stress. And when interviewed, she said, quote, sometimes I get tired and feel sick, but I'm getting used to it. And like, I, I like... It's just, I don't know. I read that line and I had to stop for a little bit because that's not the sort of thing you should ever hear from a 15 year old. Like, I don't want to hear a child who is so beaten down because they are working full time that 
their stomach hurts because they don't get enough sleep and that they're like, yeah, this sucks, but oh, well, I'll get used to it. This is just how things are like, and this is just one kid. Like this investigation from the times, they found kids working in nearly every single industry you can think of. They talked to over a hundred migrant child workers in 20 States including 12-year-old Ru- – uh, this, um, this is an extended quote from, the, from the, the New York Times investigation saying they found, quote, 12-year-old roofers in Florida and Tennessee, underage slaughterhouse workers in Delaware, Mississippi, and North Carolina, children sawing planks of wood on overnight shifts in South Dakota, children scrubbing dishes late into the night all over the country – they run milking machines in Vermont and deliver meals in New York City. They harvest coffee and build lava rock walls around vacation homes in Hawaii. And girls as young as 13 wash hotel sheets in Virginia. End quote. And as another example, they have one where, quote, Paco Calvo arrived in Middlebury, Vermont when he was 14 and has been working 12-hour days on dairy farms in the four years since. He said he crushed his hand in an industrial milking machine in the first months doing the work, saying, quote, Pretty much everyone gets hurt when they first start, end quote. Well, that just, yeah, it, it sounds very similar to um, the 15-year-old girl's quote, almost, in that, like, you know, people always get hurt when they start, you know, but you get used to it or whatever, you know, like, that's, uh, it's unacceptable, like, yeah. well, and the United States is directly to blame for the conditions that brought these people here as well you know it's u.s imperialism that has pointedly uh impoverished their country specifically for the people in this country who own businesses to make more money and then when those people have to leave that situation and come here they just get exploited by the same class of business owners all over again and sometimes in more cruel and horrific ways like having children do work where your hand can get crushed in industrial equipment, which is uh, incredibly horrible. And we saw over 130,000 migrant children, just the children, arrived in the United States last year. And of course, uh, the response from the United States government is not to take some of the money that we stole from around the world from these people's countries and help them with it. Instead, the Biden administration has proved itself to be essentially no different than any Republican administration in continuing to move towards a much more carceral, right? wing and openly racist approach to migration as a cynical form of political triangulation literally saying that like uh you know it's worth the the points on the the 365 politics or whatever nate silver's predictions are uh to just sacrifice the lives of millions of people yeah and like i want to i want to point out because again this is the way that this shit is often framed in our media is as like this is an invade it's 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 always incredibly racist that it's this is an invasion of migrants and you know you have the openly exterminationist nazi rhetoric from the gop mm-hmm. but the then you have the rhetoric from the democrats which isn't really much better it's basically like oh we need to have a work visa program for these 13 year olds like that's basically their version of this which isn't really much better like, I guess it's better that they don't want to just kill all of these people than the Republicans. I no, they want to send mar- them through the quote-unquote proper channels to be able to get their hands crushed by a milking machine or to be sick and have to get used right. to it. 
Right. And, and, but the, I think the thing that we always have to remember about this is first of all, even, you know, obviously it's like, okay, these people are coming into the country to work. We should be helping them. Also, mm-hmm. they're children. We should be helping them not have to work because they're fucking children and children shouldn't have to fucking work. Yeah. But instead, we criminalize them, even though the only reason that these kids are coming to this country is because we destroyed their country directly, the United States. Not indirectly, not like through arcane, like very difficult to understand economic processes that are like really like seven orders removed. No, violently, directly using American weapons. Like if you, if you go listen to our episodes on the repressive state apparatus and listen to the episode where we talked about Operation Condor, that was a covert military operation by the United States to essentially take over Latin America during the 1960s and 1970s, where the United States installed far-right military dictatorships in about half of the countries in Latin America. And that includes Guatemala. And this has to be mentioned because the United States sponsored a genocide against the indigenous people of Guatemala in order to continue to control the country as they had since the 1954 overthrow of Jacobo Arbenz for the horrific crime of suggesting that perhaps some of the land that United Fruit owned and was not even using should be owned by the people that live in Guatemala. And so that's how we got to where we're at today, which is that companies like Pepsi and Coke and DuPont want to completely control these countries, use their workers as essentially a slave labor force, and extract every single cent of natural wealth that these countries have. And that has been ongoing for centuries, really since the United States has existed. It has been working as an imperialist power. I mean, you can look, William Walker was a American who multiple times invaded Guatemala, or not, invaded Nicaragua during the 1800s. And we've just been doing this shit ever since. And so that is why you have, again, 130,000 kids traveling alone by themselves to the United States last year. Kids don't do that because they're like, oh, hey, I'm so excited to go work at fucking Costco in the United States so that I'm going to leave my family. Like, this is, this is the hardest decision that these families ever have to make. They are literally sending their children to another country to labor, to make money. And the only reason they are doing that is because they are literally fucking starving. Because the United States has destroyed the economies of these countries in order to steal their wealth. So... Anyways, that's my explanation for why, you know, U.S. imperialism is the root cause of this problem. But Mm -hmm. getting back to the conditions that these kids face when they get here, social workers estimate that about two-thirds of all unaccompanied migrant kids who arrive in this country end up working full-time. Teachers who were interviewed by the Times reported kids passing out in class even being hospitalized from their sheer exhaustion and overwork of trying to both work full-time and maintain a school load. Of course, many of them find they can't do that and drop out of school altogether, uh, which only makes, you know, exacerbates the problem because now not only uh, are they, you know, in a country they're not familiar with, have no support network whatsoever, and of course the government isn't fucking helping, now they are essentially even more trapped in the, to their employer because without you know having a high school diploma or equivalent it makes your mobility as a worker in this country well already which is already hard even more difficult and um sorry um, no it's it's okay 
And so, of course, again, this is the, the, the Times went and found that this is basically child labor is a systemic part of the United States economy. But of course, none of these major companies that are involved in it and are making millions of dollars from it will admit that they're doing it. And a big part of the way they get away with that, and we've talked about this in previous individual stories, like especially when we talked about the Hyundai story, which is by using contractors saying, oh, no, no, we didn't hire those 12-year-olds. You can't get mad at us. We outsource all our hiring to ABC Labor, who you know had 17 uh, <laughs> charges brought against them last week when their name was something else, and the week before that when their name was something else, because they, these are just shell companies that they make in order to escape liability. And so they just blame these staffing agencies and they say, we will stop. This is like what Hyundai's doing. They're like, we will not work with these staffing agencies that provided child labor ever again. They also haven't actually cut their relations with those and have mostly been doing that as a PR move. Mm-hmm. But even when they do cut ties with these staffing agencies, the staffing agencies just change their name and reincorporate and go back to doing the exact same thing. And like... While this whole system really could be looked at as a massive form of human trafficking, like collectively by the United States capitalist class, a lot of these kids are more directly being human trafficked the way that you would think about it. Some child workers told the New York Times that the people that they were placed with by Homeland Security as their sponsor in this country put them in basically a system of slavery, very similar to what we've heard of with farm workers and domestic workers faced both in places, you know, like Qatar, but also here in the United States, where they basically get told, oh, well, I'm taking care of you, so you owe me this huge bill of all of these things. And so, you know, you're going to have to pay that off. And so they turn these kids essentially into slaves. And they're like, you have to go work here and you have to give me all of your wages because I'm being so nice as to take care of you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's literally a forced labor system. And uh, the U.S. government doesn't do a single thing about it because they make money off of it. They profit directly and indirectly off of it. And then on top of that, uh, when these children do reach out to the police, they routinely refuse to come and help them because unsurprisingly, despite whatever their badge may say, the police's job is definitely not to protect children or workers or child workers, and especially if they're migrants, because of course the police are incredibly racist and we have seen at least a dozen migrant child workers who have been killed on the job in the last six years that's just the ones we know about and because of the undocumented nature of many of these workers and the undocumented nature of the labor that they do in many cases we can be sure that the numbers are in fact much 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 higher than that uh the biden administration in response to the investigation said that it would crack down and God, I love it when the Biden administration promises to do something. Um, yeah. I mean, but Biden literally wrote plan Columbia, which was a, yeah. a basically a successor program uh, specifically for Columbia to the operations of uh, 
Plan Condor, basically continuing the United States neocolonial control of Colombia, largely in this case through the DEA. And so, yeah, that guy is not going to be out there fucking ending the U.S. imperialist policies that have led to these situations. And he's not going to do anything that's going to interfere with the profits of the very companies that put him in that office. Yeah, it's like hearing that Sheriff Joe Arpaio is going to crack down on companies who (laughs) use migrant child labor. It's just nonsense. It's completely absurd. Uh, Yeah, and... and it's and like you know it's not hard to see why nothing ever happens for this like there was a former manager at Packer Sanitation who had left the company told the NBC News that the standard practice for the company when they encountered a kid who was clearly underage was to just officially turn the other way and beca- and they specifically cited that a big part of why is because the maximum civil penalty for breaking child labor law is $15,000 how is there a like, maximum penalty that's just- oh, that's really common. Like <sighs> specifically because of this, it's because any 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 crime that is punishable by a fine is legal for the rich, but they still want the fine to be lower. Mm-hmm. So you have all sorts of these things where you have the fine is just capped so that it's some amount that can't possibly bother ninety percent of major businesses. Yeah. Well, and I mean, in some cases, the government has not only done nothing to stop this exploitation of children, but it has actually uh, exacerbated it. Reporter Lauren K. Gurley reported this last week in the Washington Post that after an investigation exposed Packer Sanitation for hiring thirteen-year-old uh, a thirteen-year-old migrant girl, both her mother and stepfather have been criminally charged and have been threatened with deportation. So they're making it so that it is scary to even report child labor, to make it so that mm-hmm. it is a crime to expose these crimes. Right. And and that the thing is, though, like that correctly reveals the orientation of the state to these investigations, which is they are not mad because there's child labor. They are mad that people are exposing the child labor. They're like, hey, we got a good thing going here, making all this money off of these defenseless children. Don't screw up this arrangement we've got going on. And so they do this shit, charging these... They literally charged this girl's stepfather as, like, essentially human trafficking because he was giving her a ride to work. Because, to be clear, he was not trafficking her he wasn't taking her wages he wasn't forcing her to work or any of this other thing they're a poor family and she was working to try and help and that sucks that's really bad like she should but the response to that should be give this family material assistance so that she doesn't have to work and also the united states should pay the people of guatemala absolutely enormous reparations alongside all the other countries that we fucking destroyed but anyway outside of that no instead they charge both of her parents with a crime as exactly that to attempt to stop any more of these exposés by basically telling migrant workers hey if you're if you know a kid who like is working and they talk to a reporter you are going to get deported Mm -hmm. and that's just going to make finding these cases even harder and and it really, like, it, it all comes down to the fact that this whole situation 
is a continuance of the fact that the United States' economy has always relied on slavery since day one. That is how the United States became so powerful, is the fact that the United States has been the perfect capitalist empire. Because there is, like, the the core imperative of every capitalist enterprise is to maximize its income and minimize its costs. And you can't get a lower labor cost than zero. And so that's always been the goal that American businesses have always been looking for. And, you know, of course, there's some contradictions between capitalism and and forms of slavery. But, I mean, the United States basically either directly invaded or sponsored a force that was murdering millions of people throughout this entire region. Like, they, the U.S. was directly involved in the slaughter of millions of people during Operation Condor. Uh, Guatemala, as a nation, is the largest source of these migrant children and was the site of the largest single genocide sponsored by the United States. I believe about 250,000 indigenous people were killed during the Condor years uh, in Guatemala specifically. And th- these events are why this is happening. And the U.S. not only profits directly from the exploitation of the people of Guatemala and the theft of their resources and the control of their government, it now profits again by being able to exploit their children after they've come to the United States. Like, the, this is just such a horrific system that has been set up to funnel the like all wealth that is created more or less in the world directly into the hands of the United States ruling class. It like, this is what imperialism is. It is a planet wide threshing machine that feeds on the blood and sweat of literal children. Like this is why we have to destroy (laughs) capitalism because this stuff is just the inevitable result of that system. There is no reforming this system because it depends on this kind of violence and this kind of exploitation. Like, I mean, reading this story and then, you know, you go back to the Marx quote. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, we, sh- we have no compassion and we ask no compassion of you. When our term comes, we shall not make excuses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, like, you kind of get why <laughs> he would write something like that. Yeah. I mean, it, um, it's, it's similar. Th- this stuff is the same reason why when somebody uh, like a normie that I don't know very well asks me about my politics, I don't open up by saying like, oh, I'm a communist, I'm a socialist, whatever. I just say something to the effect of like, I think if every American president were tried for the same way we did, we tried the Nazis, we would have to sentence them all to death. And that shocks yeah. people, but it's absolutely true. And after they think about it for a while, they realize it's true. <laughs> yeah. So this is the whole system too. Like, just to be clear, like mm-hmm. this is like every major U S corporation more yeah. or less like is benefits from this. So, uh, I mean, it's, this is all fucking horrific. Uh, this is why a big part of why I'm very passionate about encouraging people to get involved in socialist organizing, because if we're not involved, we can't build the movement. Um, but yeah, this is my, my personal appeal on this episode of why organizing is important because you know, if we don't do the organizing here, we can't actually stop this system. Absolutely. So 
as with many of these really difficult stories that we cover, uh, it is not very easy to transition into the next story, so I'm just going to jump right in on it. Uh, we're going to be talking about workers in Portland who are striking against incredibly onerous hours and just awful uh, conditions. So workers at CertainTeed Roofing, uh, a subsidiary of a French giant, St. Gobain, Gobin? Go- Gobin? Probably Gobain. Uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> have but they've been on strike since February 22nd over the first over the uh, over first the company's refusal to even bargain with the workers and now due to their inhuman contract proposal about 60 workers from Layuna local 737 walked out on a ULP strike after the company first balked at even sitting down for negotiations and then offered this terrible contract. These workers who produce asphalt shingles used all across the region walked off unanimous after unanimously voting down the contract uh, that was just absolutely atrocious. These workers are work incredibly long hours, most 12-hour days, five hours or five days a week. But now the company wants to get more productivity out of these workers rather than simply hire more hands to do the job. They are taking the all-too-common approach these days of proposing uh, understaffing and implementing unlivable speed-ups. Not satisfied with getting just 60 hours out of these workers, the company is demanding that the workers agree to new 13-1 schedules, which means that those that is not hours, that is days, mm-hmm. where workers are forced to do these 12-hour days, not just five days a week, but for 13 days out of 14. So one day off over the period of two weeks, which amounts to 2.1 or 2.2 days off a month. Yeah. Yeah. And I got to say, I've never produced an asphalt shingle, but I imagine it is brutal fucking work. It sounds hard as shit. Well, yeah. And I mean, doing anything for 12 hours a day, Mm -hmm. that's too many hours a day. And, and, 13 12 hour days in two weeks like you you're working 84 hours one week Mm -hmm. and 72 hours the next week the light week only 72 hours yeah and then on top of all of this the company is only offering up five percent raises this year and 2.5 percent raises for the next two years of the three-year deal and so after a year of record inflation, the workers are, of course, calling bullshit on that. Uh, we heard from millwright Rich Hobart, who told the Northwest Labor Press, if we take a 5% raise, we're taking a pay cut, which is That's something right. we hear all the time because it's absolutely fucking true. Uh, and uh, commented that the lowball offer only made the workers mad. Something <laughs> that, I mean, that's the correct response, at least. So Yeah. Well, they've been on strike for a week and a half now and are encouraging members of the community to show up to support them on the picket line from 6 till 6 every day during the week. Uh, Donations of food, drinks, and firewood are welcome. So if you are in the Portland area, go and support these workers who are being told that they need to work 80-hour weeks. Yeah. Also, it sounds like a pretty tight picket line if they're lighting fires. So definitely (laughs) check that out. Yeah. So in other things that we've been covering consistently, we have been talking about different grad student unions. 
this time we actually have a bunch of stories, and so we're going to try to get through these kind of quickly. The, Lightning round. Yeah. We, we've got the Minnesota grad student workers who had, on Monday, the February 20th, announced that they were going to be joining the giant wave of universities organizing and affiliating with the UE, United Electrical Workers. Their cost of living in the area, where most of the graduate student uh, workers are is thirty seven thousand dollars, and the average pay of these workers is twenty eight thousand dollars. It's a nine thousand dollar like debt there, um, and clearly not enough to to live on. In a statement, worker organizer Phoebe Keys said, "Graduate workers at UNM need a change. We face low pay and high student fees." Worker expectations are unclear, and when issues arise, there is little to no support for graduate workers. End quote. They attempted to get their recognition of the year of their union back in 2005 and 2012, uh, but fell short of the numbers they needed to actually win. Uh, but overall, this is actually the sixth union drive on these ca- on this campus since 1974. This one looks a little bit more promising because mm-hmm. on the 28th, the union announced that they had gotten over half the school system of uh, school system, a total of 4,400 graduate students to sign union cards. And that is uh, pretty encouraging that after only eight days, they got half of the student body organized. So yeah, like 2,000 workers signing cards in eight days. That's like. That's super impressive. Oh, so. right. So I, I guess I said it wrong because I said that it was 4,400 that were that signed. So yeah, yeah, 2,200 about were the ones that had signed cards. But to move to our next story uh, in, in this kind of lightning round, we're going to be talking about Princeton grad student workers who on February 15th announced that they would be starting their card drive, also affiliating with the UE. They had yeah. actually begun organizing back in 2016, and they announced that they had majority support just uh again like nine days after that on the 24th then on the 28th the university announced that they would be raising stipends by five thousand dollars uh of the for the following academic year but there was a little bit of a caveat in that they said that it would only apply to some graduate students not identifying who the some graduate students are look uh, this timing is completely coincidental it definitely has nothing to do with the union drive this is something we were going to do anyway we're totally <laughs> prepared for this situation anyway yes steamed hams it's a regional expression <laughs> <laughs> they they've just got like a binder in like one of those like glass cases that says like in case of union drive, <laughs> give small raise yeah. <laughs> to some people. Yeah. <laughs> and then take it back the next year. <laughs> yeah. Um, they are organizing around six uh, demands, fair and effective, gr- a fair and effective grievance procedure, improved support for international students, more comprehensive health care and child care, affordable housing through uh, graduation with essential accommodations like air conditioning, because uh, many grad students in Princeton pay upwards of 80 to 90 percent of their pay in rent and guaranteed pay raises and contingency funding and a clear and safe standard for working and teaching. So, you know, these are all very similar to other demands that we've seen 
at at other sorts of universities. But this is not the end of our list of grad students who are organizing. We also have another UE affiliated union at UE Dartmouth. UE so hot right now. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really is. Uh, at, at Dartmouth. Uh, <laughs> they are. They requested their voluntary recognition on February 14th and then did not get it. And so on the 26th, they actually filed for their election. They are organizing 900 grad students. Uh, in their letter requesting voluntary recognition, they specifically cited the massive ongoing wave of union organizing at schools like MIT, Northwestern, John Hopkins, uh, and really uh, expected that their victory is inevitable, uh, which is really, really uh, awesome to see that kind of revolutionary optimism. I also really liked their choice of name specifically so they could have a cool acronym, the Graduate Organized Laborers of Dartmouth, so that their their union name is just gold. Yeah. (laughs) Stay gold. Yeah. That's That's right. (laughs) And then the last university that we're going to be reporting on today is Duke University, where, uh, I mean, like, there's just so many big names that are organizing because now's the time. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. they announced back in September of 2022 that they had formed their union, and as of March 4th, they have officially filed for their NLRB election. They are affiliating with the SEIU, and workers have asked for voluntary recognition of its 2,500-member me- bargaining uh, unit, but uh, that didn't happen, uh, and so they ended up filing. They have also been organizing for years, but had to withdraw their last NLRB election petition back in 2017. I think that this is really the trend. It was really hard to organize for many, many years. In Because for one, it was illegal for a really mm-hmm. long time. And then you have to get through some of that rhetoric. And then, you know, we also saw the pandemic, which really empowered a lot of people to stand up for their rights, as well as a bunch of other conditions that led up to it. Uh, but I think the pandemic is one of the bigger ones. Yeah, so this rules. It's just so exciting to see so many grad student workers organizing. And so many of these, like, and these are huge bargaining units, too. It's like Minnesota, like 4,000 workers. Princeton, like, uh, I don't know if we know how many, like 2,500 or whatever. Dartmouth, 2,500. This is like, like between these four schools, it's like over 10,000 workers if they were to all win. So, yeah, I mean, academic organizing has just been so that seems to be the big inspiring thing right now. So I'm ready to just count them all as union members right now, because honestly, I we haven't seen anything other than landslide victories in these things. Pretty much. That's true. But for our last story, we're 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 bringing back Starbucks at the end, folks. Uh, There was a some really big Starbucks news this (laughs) this week where we had the biggest single legal ruling of the Starbucks campaign of the the year-plus-long drive to organize workers across the company when a administrative law judge hit Starbucks with a laundry list of penalties for its campaign of flagrant lawbreaking, which Judge Michael Rosas called, quote, egregious and widespread. And issued a really big ruling focusing on Buffalo that has a lot of major uh, implications for this drive. The case centers, again, around Buffalo. That's like the one bad thing about this is ultimately that this is about the very first stores that got union busted Mm -hmm. or that were attempted to be union busted by Starbucks, again, like a year ago. And we're just now getting to this penalty phase. 
which that sucks. More than but, a year ago. This was December of 2021 when that really started. I think that that was the, the first elections happened in in December of 2021. Yeah, so these ULPs were probably filed around then, maybe in January-ish. But um, basically, you know, as we've seen across the country, Starbucks fired numerous pro-union workers, flooded stores with management and new hires, and attempted to loot the bargaining unit surveilled workers, held captive audience meetings, and even went so far as to close one store to prevent it from unionizing, which, of course, they claimed is not why they closed it, but that's just because all they do is lie. Mm -hmm. But um, so in this ruling from this administrative law judge, where they finally ruled in court that Starbucks has been illegally, you know, union busting, which, of course, we know, but they keep lying about it. And now the bigger newspapers that actually care about this stuff don't have to keep saying allegedly. Uh, we don't care about that because this has been true since the moment the workers said it. Yeah, love um, that for them, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in the ruling, the judge ordered Starbucks to, and this is a long list, reopen the location they closed during the early days of the campaign to stop an election there. He also ordered them to recognize and bargain with the union at the Camp Road location, which notably is the one store in Buffalo where workers had voted against the union. But the NLRB ruled that Starbucks used so much illegal intimidation that a fair election at that store was impossible, and therefore the store must recognize the union and bargain with them regardless of the election results. God, if if legal precedents were real, it would be <laughs> so cool because we could literally apply this to Every union busting campaign in America, which is almost at 99.9% of businesses that face a union campaign. <laughs> right. Because I just be like, hey, Trader Joe's, remember those stores you mm -hmm. fucked with? Those are now union. Fuck you. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, but that's not, those are the two biggest ones. But then in addition, Starbucks must rehire seven illegally fired workers and provide back pay and compensation for lost benefits. They must additionally provide compensation to two dozen other workers who lost hours and had promotions withheld due to the company's illegal union busting campaign. And finally, uh, they are requiring Howard Schultz to be personally present for the recording of the reading of a statement by a Starbucks corporate official acknowledging the company's violations of the law and explaining what rights workers have. That last one may be the one that most people heard about, I think because some folks saw that and thought, oh, they're going to make Howard Schultz read the thing. And I'm like, no, nah, mm. there's no law that makes that they're going to make the CEO do that. I wish that would be great, but it's going to be, he has to be in the room while some PR exec reads the letter. I mean, to be fair, this is just the limits of how cool a judge can be in the system <laughs> yes. is that they're willing to make him show up, but they won't make him say the words, say the line, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, now, for the first thing, I got to say, I'm not 100% sure they're actually going to end up reopening that store they closed. That one seems like, a, like from a legal perspective, I have to feel like very difficult to make them reopen the store. It, but it might just be the sort of thing where they're like, well, we can't because XYZ business reason. And then they have to provide like additional compensation to workers. So I don't know about that one. But the bargaining order, seven workers have to be rehired and repaid. And I think we're talking about precedence the the having to pay compensation to workers whose hours were slashed basically in an effort to get them to quit because they're pro union that applies to hundreds if not maybe actually probably thousands 
of workers across the country. And again, were it to be, you know, settled in basically a class action type of thing, could really start hitting the pocketbook of Starbucks. Of course, that's not how the U.S. legal system works, and so that's not how that will go. Uh, but this is a really good ruling. It's this really is a step in the right direction. And so, like Michelle Eisen, who is a worker organizer in Buffalo since the beginning of the campaign, said in a statement, "Quote." This decision results from months of tireless organizing by workers in cafes across the country, demanding better working conditions in the face of historical, monumental, and now deemed illegal union busting, end quote. And, and so, yeah, like, look, it's, it, this is great. I think the only other real downside to this, besides, of course, how long it took, is the fact that this is the most you can really get from U.S. labor mm-hmm. law. Uh, there's no criminal charges that have been or will be filed against Schultz and other board members of the company for flagrant lawbreaking, um, despite the fact that they have obviously, by this ruling, been engaged in a conspiracy to systemically violate the rights of all Starbucks workers across the country. We know that, and it has now been proven in this lawsuit. But of course, that doesn't matter because those laws are to be used against workers and not against bosses. So I'm not expecting any criminal charges that obviously should be, you know, slapped on the, these folks. But, but that being said, this is a welcome ruling, especially for the workers in Buffalo, because it's going to make a real difference in improving the lives of these workers who have been systemically harassed for the last year and a half. And just in some other quick Starbucks news to finish us off, in addition to, you know, the hundreds of stores that have either become union or filed to become union, there's now the possibility that some of the corporate workers at Starbucks HQ might look into unionizing. Uh, Josh Idelson for Bloomberg reported last week that workers at Starbucks corporate headquarters sent a letter to management criticizing the mandatory return to office policy in the context of the ongoing COVID pandemic. They've even you know, shown signs. They're like, if, look, if we're not going to be listened to on this, maybe we have to follow the lead of the, the workers at the stores and maybe we should look into this whole union thing. Oh, do it. Please. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> you would get so yeah, much support it, from the baristas. I promise. Oh my yeah, gosh! Right? Absolutely. <laughs> to to have like people the the people who uh, call who you call for support, you know, whether it be about your your benefits or or any of that. Like if they were union and you know you were in it together with them as well in that way, there would be some power. There would be some fucking power. Yeah, absolutely. And summarizing why they sent the letter, one worker, Peter De Jesus, told uh, Bloomberg, "Quote." After Howard issued his edict, I definitely did not feel good working for Starbucks anymore. It felt like I'm working for a dictator. I feel like this is not the Starbucks that I signed on for, end quote. I think that this is somewhat, that he's like approaching the point, you know, like get, getting getting real close to understanding what labor in yeah. the United, in, in the capitalist system is. Like, I don't want to be an ass ever because it's always like, look, this is good. They sent this letter. That's a good move. That's great. But I just, in this specific case, the whole like, I, you know, I just feel like Howard Schultz is kind of acting like a dictator. And I'm just (laughs) imagining, you know, any of the thousands of baristas across the country, like, 
yeah, no shit, man. (laughs) Welcome to the party. Well, to be real, though, I mean, like when he said, I feel like this is not the Starbucks that I signed on for. I get that, though, because like even at the barista level, you go through Starbucks onboarding process. It's a very cult like thing where they're not just teaching you how to make the drinks and stuff. They're also trying to like really instill in you that this is one of the greatest companies ever. And there's like a real corporate culture here. There's a lot of room for you to grow and expand. We can help you springboard into other areas like it. There's a whole like lifestyle that comes along with it it's there's like an internal marketing campaign at their employees this this thick veneer of bourgeois ideology ideology i mean and i don't know it's it's easy as a marxist to be like how can you not see through that but like think back to yourself Uh when you were i can take a bit yeah, it's tough. It's tough. So, like, you know, yeah, absolutely. Bravo to any any workers who who are seeing through this stuff and and doing something about it. Absolutely. And then just one final note, just one little cherry on top of this. We did have one more uh, victory for the union at a Starbucks store where workers in Las Vegas won their store's union vote on Tuesday, February twenty eighth, by a vote of eighteen to three becoming one of the Starbucks Workers United movements over 270 unionized locations. 18 to 3. I like those odds, Vegas. They beat the spread, baby. (laughs) They nailed it. (laughs) That's right. Speaking of nailing it, let's move to the meme review. (laughs) That's right. I like I I I really like I really like visually this this first one. Yeah. Yeah, so this is going to be in image description time. So, uh Kirby, you know, you know Kirby, imagine a plush Kirby inside of a little machine, maybe just next to the the glass wall. And then imagine the smile of a Gengar, right? That's kind of <laughs> what it looks like, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, His big the, Cheshire Gengar smile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the reflection of the the plush Kirby is in the glass to the right, and it it has the big Gengar smile, which is almost like really menacing and like uh, uh kind of. Well, yeah, I'm just gonna go with the word menacing for that. Yeah. But the uh, the cute plush Kirby is labeled customer service face, and then the menacing uh, Kirby is customer service thoughts. Which is, <laughs> which uh, as a, someone who's worked in customer service, th- this is not only like something that everyone feels; it's something everyone talks about. Yeah. Like y- if you have mm-hmm. been in customer service, you don't like customers. You don't yeah. like them, folks. If somebody ever asks you the question, "Is there anything else I can help you with today?" What it means is they want to push you off a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, very important for people to remember that the customer is, in fact, always wrong. <laughs> always <right>. a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, then the next one is a classic quote that is just, just happens to be on a background. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got Mario and Luigi here pointing at a, at a whiteboard. Uh, the quote here is, uh, I guess there's a quote here on this uh text that says quote you must play the game perfectly or your suffering is justified end quote is a morally bankrupt ideology which is just basically explaining capitalism saying if you fail it is your own fault Mm. and it's like isn't there some responsibility to the system and the ways in which the exploitation is handed out amongst all you know? Oh, I'm supposed to shut up and I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just jealous of all of the rich people because I want to be rich. Oh, okay. I guess that must be the answer, right? That must be the answer. 
<laughs> yeah, you just don't know the right button combos. You're just mashing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Paper Mario and Paper Luigi. Yeah, That's right. <laughs> uh, the next one is just a tweet, and it's from at NoGoodChuck3, and it says, Leftist Twitter, and then you have a screen cap from a Futurama episode where Dr. Hubert J. Farnsworth is pointing across an arena of scientists at another at Dr. Ogden Wernstrom saying, don't listen to that crackpot. And then Wernstrom responds, but I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I loved this because, I mean, I don't get, I'm not on Twitter really, uh, but I've seen, I've been online. So I am familiar with how online things are. And like, you can sit there and be like, I'm agreeing with you. And they, and people will just keep arguing. They will just keep <laughs> arguing. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it reminds me of that one that's just like, Twitter is the only place where people will just invent a completely different thing than what you said. Mm-hmm. Or you'll be like, boy, I love pancakes. And they'll be like, oh, so you hate waffles? <laughs> it's like, no, that's a completely different sentence. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. And then we have this one, which was edited inside of our server because originally it had a uh, different text. <laughs> and yeah, probably so this one, no, is that Dale Earnhardt? I don't know my NASCAR Of course NASCAR that's Dale Earnhardt. <laughs> <laughs> that is, like, one of my favorite subgenres of leftist memes is just taking, like, Marx quotes and, like, putting them on pictures of Dale Earnhardt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I don't actually know the, uh, the, the, I guess, the history of why Dale Earnhardt is a leftist icon, but I have accepted it, and it seems cool. Hi, Peter Griffin here to explain the meme. When <laughs> when Dale Earnhardt wrote Capital Volume 1. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this one, it's it's basically, it's just, it's one of those blank meme formats where it's got a blank screen so you can put whatever you want on it. And, 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 it's, and it's, this one originally said, the original lib version of this meme that didn't have Dale Earnhardt on it just said, Record profits with no increase in worker pay are stolen wages. Uh, that's the lib version of this, which is like it's true, but it's missing such an enormous part of the statement. Mm-hmm. And so it's been corrected. <laughs> Uh, where now the words record and with no increase in worker pay have been crossed out so that it now just reads profits are stolen wages, which is correct. <laughs> There's a little uh, hand-drawn heart there, too, almost like it's a balloon on a string. I do. Yeah, and then you've got, of course, you know, Dale Earnhardt standing next to it to help you understand that he's just trying to help, you know, you understand how the system works. I love that this <laughs> image has been deliberalized two times, both the, the scratching out of the words and the adding of Dale Earnhardt, but also because it's originally a screen cap from The Simpsons where Lisa is on stage, but you can't see her at all. She's been totally cropped yeah. out of the image. <laughs> I, that's what I thought this one was, but I wasn't 100% sure if it was that format or not. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I know my meme formats. <laughs> <laughs> well, and for people who listen to the show also know this next meme format, which is the this is the future the le- that leftists want. Uh, this one just happens to be a photo of a bunch of little baby possums eating yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I do want to watch baby possums eat yogurt. That was I, <laughs> it's adorable. I was one of those baby possums last week when I learned how to make Turkish eggs, which are fucking delicious and not very difficult. <laughs> Look it up. Huh. <laughs> this has been cooking with John. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, and we want to thank you all for listening. And if you'd like to support our show, you can do that at, at patreon.com slash cookingwithjohn. Uh, <laughs> That's right. No, uh, p- patreon.com slash workstoppage. And we appreciate the support as an entirely listener-supported show. Jump in the Discord and check out these memes so you can see these cute little possums eat yogurt. You can leave us a review anywhere you'd like. Follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain and follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. If in progress is ours once more, now that we have a new Toronto. Yeah, yeah.